We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Who Killed Malcolm X is one of the illest Netflix documentaries to come along in a while. You already know how important Malcolm is and how inspirational he is. I love to hear him speak from the stage and bring that fire. This doc goes into all of that, but also into the detective story around who killed Malcolm. Because he was murdered by three gunmen who shot at him at the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem as he was speaking, shot him right in front of his wife and his four young daughters. We know who shot him. We know that the main trigger man did not get caught and was not convicted or punished for the murder. We know that he was a Muslim from Newark. And thanks to this doc, we know that the NYPD knew Malcolm was about to be killed and did nothing. And we know that the FBI, the federal government, had infiltrated Malcolm's organization and the Nation of Islam and was actively trying to sow dissent that would lead to division and perhaps murder. And new out of this doc is this that really kills me. Malcolm's main bodyguard was an NYPD infiltrator and secret informant Malcolm didn't know. And he was standing right beside Malcolm when he was killed. So he could have saved him. He could have, and this part makes me so mad, he could have helped identify his killer. For now, it's the two directors of Who Killed Malcolm X on Netflix, Rachel Dretzen and Phil Bertelson on Torre Show. There are so many things in this documentary that blew me away. And perhaps <sighs> Malcolm's closest bodyguard was an NYPD plant. <laughs> that alone, plus he was standing right next to Malcolm when he was assassinated, which means he probably knew who actually pulled the trigger, because I assume William Bradley was closest to Malcolm. And third... The NYPD did not question him, did not, were not made aware of his uh, status as a cop for many years. And you guys spent a lot of time talking to this man. Well, a couple, a couple corrections on that. That was almost right. Um, we didn't actually talk to him because he passed away. What okay. you saw and what you see in the documentary are extensive interviews that were done with him okay. by two other folks who talked to him before he died. Okay. Um, but the, and the other thing is it was the, it was the, um, district attorney's office, the prosecutor, the prosecutor that did not tell the 
Um, no, the no, NYPD, no, I'm sorry. The did, NYPD not did not tell the prosecutor, the prosecutor exactly. that they had a plant in the room. That's right. That he was there, he could have said, no, that guy did it, not yeah. those guys. Theoretically, he could have. <sighs> tell know, the people <laughs> about this man, for starters. Well, I'll start by saying not only did the NYPD not give him and his name to the prosecution when they were <clears throat> you know, forming the case for questioning, but uh, they chastised him for actually trying to save Malcolm's life. Um, CPR. Yes. Mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, which many conspiracy theorists, theorists, I should say, um, suspect he was actually stifling Malcolm's last breath as opposed to trying to give him life. Um, And, well, that was his argument anyway to the NYPD, to his superiors, that he was trying to save Malcolm's life. And they're like, why would you do that? You know, he's... You're a cop. He's a thug, I think is the quote. Right. And it's uh, it's really troublesome to hear that that was the mentality of those who are, you know, charged with our service and protection. Uh, and I, 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 I shudder to think um, that that may in some ways be true today. But. Well, how did we get even to what was this man's name? Gene, Gene Roberts. Roberts. How did Gene Roberts enter it wasn't the Nation of Islam because this is after Malcolm had left or been kicked out of the Nation of Islam. How did he enter Malcolm's? This is the OAAU era. It was the OAAU era and the um, organization. Malcolm had two organizations actually at that point. The Muslim Mosque Incorporated, which was the MMI. So we had a religious organization, which was the MMI and the OAAU, which was his political arm. Um, And, uh, Gene essentially infiltrated both as a bodyguard. So he was security. You know, he wasn't aligned as a as a patron of of Malcolm's so much as a devotee who was assigned to his security detail. And he rises up to become his number one guy. He was his security coordinator. So, you know, it's hard to know if that means he was his number one guy, but he was clearly in a central and important critical He's role. Standing literally yes. beside him. Yes. You know, the the part of the story that we don't get to tell is how he actually got exposed years later um, in the Panther 21 trial here in New York City, celebrated trial that um, was, you know, won on the part of the Panthers. But Gene Roberts had infiltrated the Panthers, so he left Malcolm's detail, infiltrated the Panthers, and he was called to witness on this particular day of trial and was a no-show. So everyone was looking around, and they're like, where's Gene? And suddenly they knew who the mole was. Uh, at least the attorneys did. And they they forced him to testify and basically outed him on the stand. It's a traumatic story. He broke down, you know. It's an amazing story because the, the prosecutor who was questioning him, um, you know, was essentially pushing him to— It was an attorney, an Ger- attorney Gerald Leftcourt. Gerald Leftcourt to, you know, essentially confess that he had been trying to kill Malcolm when he was giving him mouth to mouth. And Gene evidently broke down on the stand and he was like, no, I loved him. And actually, there is evidence that Gene, you know, the more time that he spent around Malcolm, the more he began to admire him. And by the time Malcolm was dead, Gene actually did love Malcolm, which complicates the whole picture because the NYPD completely distrusted the guy completely distrusted him and saw him as having gone over to the other side. So it's a it's a really fascinating story. And actually, after that, 
you know, Roberts just deteriorated to the point where, you know, he he died with his head in a bottle. You know, he mm. was really. I think that the term was face down on a bar somewhere. Yeah, mm. no teeth. You know? So it's a it's a tragic tale of of you know being African American at that time and being part of law enforcement in such a way that your identity was withheld. You were a ghost among, you know, goblins, right? And they ate them up, spit them out. This is not the only infiltrator who was there at the end. There were nine other NYPD and FBI infiltrators in the room when Malcolm is killed. That's just the FBI. Oh, so nine FBI (laughs) people are in the room. All of whom gave statements to the FBI. But because the FBI and the NYPD were not openly exchanging information, or at least not the FBI with the NYPD, um, those test that testimony was never entered into. Those informants were never called to testify or be questioned. And it is one of those informants, at least one, who pointed to Bradley. Not necessarily by name, but a simple process of deduction as we show in the series, would lead the the investigators inevitably to Bradley. Um, one of those FBI informants um, had actually spoken to someone at a very high-ranking level who told him that the person who pulled the trigger on the shotgun was a lieutenant in the Newark Mosque, and there were only a handful of lieutenants in the Newark Mosque. And Of which Bradley was one. <laughs> William Bradley, uh, who got away, but... Before you even deal with William Bradley, is it your feeling that William Bradley himself, who killed Malcolm X, who fired the kill shot, was an FBI infiltrator or an FBI informant? We cannot prove that. We don't have the evidence to prove that. The FBI is incredibly protective of their anonymous informants, um, human informants, as they call them. And um, and so all of those records are heavily redacted. However, the fact that the FBI had, was sitting on this information and explicitly, as we do see, said that it should not be shared with the NYPD unless it was ordered from on high suggests that they might have been protecting Bradley. There are other things that point to the possibility that Bradley was being protected by somebody. There was a bank robbery that he was part of. Some and years later. Indicted for, I believe. Um, certainly With arrested for. shotgun. Right. Mm-hmm. The same yeah. weapon that killed Malcolm. And he had a co-conspirator in that robbery. Who went forward and was prosecuted. And suddenly his was just dropped. His case was dropped. He walked. <sighs> so that would suggest perhaps somebody... Higher up, the FBI is saying we're taking care of this person. Essentially, that's, yeah. Let's that's, not pursue this. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's speculation. Time, yeah, it's speculation, and you know, ultimately, Bradley, you know, did do a fair amount of time for a number of horrendous crimes, from assault and battery, and you know. Well, let's tell the story about armed robbery. William Bradley then, because he comes from the Newark Mosque. He's a lieutenant in the FOI, the Fruit of Islam. Known tough guy, criminal, felt very comfortable with a sawed-off shotgun, which is, as you say in the documentary, was not an easy weapon to manipulate. Right. And he is the one who is selected to go and kill Malcolm. Well, there were three weapons that were used. And five men who conspired. But the, the weapon that definitely, inarguably, fired the kill shot was the sawed-off shotgun. 
which was the first one to hit him and which killed him. He was. I think it's also, uh, you know, should be mentioned that he was a uh, ex-Marine. He, you know, he served our country and was honorably discharged and learned to handle those weapons with our tax dollars paying for it. But then he becomes a criminal in the years after he leaves the Marines? Correct. Right. He's a bank robber? Yep. He's His rap sheet is big and long. And um, we were only able to, or Abdur Rahman Muhammad, who's our kind of sleuth in the series, was only able to unlock it once he had his Muslim name, um, which was Al-Mustafa Shabazz. Um, but, you know, there's a long list of crimes, uh, several of them committed with a sawed-off shotgun, yes. And he just walked away. Walked away into history. There's some theory that he's actually the man featured in footage uh, outside the Autobahn that day um, where he kind of feigns this resistance um, and then simply straightens up his coat and struts across the camera. Um it's really spooky. It's a scene where there was a mob that gathered around the one assassin who was caught on the scene, Talmadge Hayer. And it's a group of police officers, for the most part, who are trying to basically protect him from a mob that's attacking him. And in the black and white footage that was taken of that scene, there is a guy, a heavyset guy with an overcoat and a newspaper in his pocket who definitely resembles William Bradley. Um, it's many years ago now, um, who sort of pretends, as Phil says, he sort of feigns to get involved in the scrum. And then he just kind of weirdly pulls himself away and kind of hurriedly walks across the frame in a way that's really hard to understand or explain. It's hard for me to understand how he could have shot Malcolm in front of about 400 people and nobody was able to go. That guy did it. No, I mean, and we know there was a distraction created beforehand, but surely that distraction created beforehand should not be underestimated because all the attention went to those two men who were actually in the middle somewhere. So people's attention went to the center of the crowd and drew their attention away from the rostrum where Malcolm was. And in the front row were the gunmen who then leapt up and did their dirty work with you know, Bradley leading the way with the sawed-off shotgun. Not to mention a visit to the Autobahn and photos will demonstrate to you that there are exits at the front of the Autobahn right off the stage where these men could very easily have just dropped their weapons, which they did, and go out unnoticed and then come around to another entrance where the scrum was happening. So there were multiple entrances. The Autobahn at the time was nothing like it is today. It's been basically truncated, cut in half, and turned into an educational center. But at the time, it was a huge auditorium and ballroom. There are a couple other things that that made it difficult for the assassins to be identified. One is that because there were so many shots that were fired at once, seemingly at once, most people just ducked, just went under their seats. Um, It was terrifying. And so, you know, they were out before many people could notice them. That's number one. Number two, they actually were identified. I mean, these guys were not known to the Harlem audience. They were from the Newark mosque. So, you know, several eyewitnesses described a heavyset, burly guy, dark skin, firing that shotgun. But, you know, it was chaos. There were lots of eyewitnesses. And totally. it went uninvestigated. And that's why the, the eyewitness testimony that convicted the three 
convicted assassins is so unreliable because it was all over the place, the eyewitness testimony. And so he goes back to Newark and lives out his life, passed away in 2018. But as you talk about in the piece, it's an open secret in Newark that lots of people in the Nation of Islam community in Newark knew you just say the guy who killed Malcolm and they say, oh, yeah, that guy. Like, <laughs> it's kind of just knew. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Widely held open secret. Seemed to be the only person in Newark of any import who wasn't aware of that history was Cory former mayor now senator Cory Booker I mean when you talk to I mean yeah you talk to not just people in the street but you talk to like officials I mean Ross Baraka's like yeah I've heard that and and who's the um the lady you talked to Lieutenant Governor Sheila Oliver Lieutenant Governor the highest elected black official in the state of New Jersey and she's she was like, at yeah. his funeral yeah she's like yeah I heard I heard that uh, you know we she, don't know but I heard that she counts among her very dear friends his 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 widow a woman named Carolyn Kelly. Um, I'm not sure she needs to be drawn into this, but you know, it should be stated that we we attempted to get her view on things and talk to her, and she she refused to to uh, participate. Mm. But we found Lieutenant Governor because we actually were filming from outside across the street at his service, and um, we saw. A security detail. Yep. Men talking into their sleeves and federal vehicles. And I'm that? thinking, what's that all about? So Force we go back, carriage. we play the footage for, who was it? Somebody in the community. I'm like, who's yes. that woman that's being protected? And they're like, that's the lieutenant governor of the state. And we're like, no way. And then we called her and asked for an interview. And she, to our astonishment, she agreed. And to our even greater astonishment, she openly admitted being at his funeral and knowing that this was what was he was said to have done. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. 
each of NPR's Black voices are as direct, varied, distinct, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. There's a crazy moment where um, uh, your host is talking to somebody um, about William Bradley, and uh, they say, um, yeah, leave him alone. Yeah, Don't mess with him. Don't mess with that. And he says it several times, like... You don't want to mess with that one. That you know, and that did not. I mean, you know, make a documentary like this. Some of the moments are created. That seemed very real. Totally yeah. real. Totally real. We actually were just getting our cameras up and running, and our host, as you call him, but who's really an independent historian, Abdur Rahman Mohammed, knew this man because they hadn't encountered before, and and just went up to him. You know, before we were ready. And ask this question, what we're going to do about him? And we just happened to kind of catch it. You'll see it from a low angle. The camera was not quite ready. It's well, he steady. was mic'd already, so but we he was mic'd, it. and uh, we got it. Um, and it was. It was a very true uh, moment. You could see and hear the fear in the man's voice. I think that was before Bradley passed oh, away. Oh yeah, well right? before Bradley had passed away. I mean, it might. It, it's extraordinary. Just you're making this documentary, and you're looking for. Uh, William Bradley, and then as you're making, you find out that he passed away as you're searching for him. On the hunt. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was brutal. But on, in retrospect, um, it, it helped us because it freed up a bunch of people to talk mm. who probably wouldn't have talked. Certainly not in the way they did. I mean, no one outwardly admitted knowing firsthand or having been told by him or anything like that, but there was a much greater willingness to share the the lore, mm. as it were. Now, one of the things that this piece does is it paints this much larger picture, right? Because, you know, yes, William Bradley pulled the trigger, um, but there's a much larger web of folks who lead to this happening. And... I want to go through them in a sort of order, sort of expanding outward. I mean, you can't talk about who killed Malcolm X and truly answer the question without talking about Elijah Muhammad. And he is a critical part of this matrix. Um, what is his part in this? Well, there's been a lot of speculation about his role in this. Um, but what we know is that he reported 
to um, or, or spoke to on the phone and in person m- many high-ranking members of the nation and said things about Malcolm that if you understood the way, the sort of coded language in which he spoke, easily could have been, likely could have been, almost definitely could have been, in our opinion, interpreted as an order. Um, nothing was directly spoken, but... Um, the language that he used for those in the know was clearly language that meant to sanction Malcolm's murder. Um, so we're able to kind of trace that in the documentary and look at the ways in which um, that was then sort of rippled down, um, down to the ranks. Um, but the nation was, Elijah was very careful to sort of create distance between himself and the rank and file. What, what, what exactly does that sound like? from Elijah Muhammad when he tells his people we want to kill Malcolm in the coded language. What does he say? I'm trying to remember some of this well, exact Well, I think language. the most explicit would be um, something that his son said here in New York at the Armory to a gathering of the fruit um, where he said, you know, that his father was looking for Malcolm's tongue to be cut out and sent back to him in Chicago. Uh, which many interpreted. That's not coded. Yeah. Well, he, I think actually, I think he <laughs> said it a little, it was a little less explicit. I think he's, what he said cut was, his tongue out. Malcolm's tongue should be cut out. He didn't say my father asked. He said Malcolm's tongue should be cut out, put in an envelope and sent to my father. So it was, it was not, and that was, that was probably the most explicit, but it was his son. It wasn't him. So there was a little bit of distance there. And there's some commentary in a unredacted, FBI document that we cover where he says something to the fact that Malcolm should be uh, treated like the Judas that he is. Um, And, you know, that is in itself coded language to suggest that, you know, he's a traitor and should be dealt with as Mm -hmm. such. People who know this Malcolm Muhammad story know that part of the key rift between them is when Malcolm discovers that Elijah Muhammad has fathered children with, is it seven younger women? That's multiple. In the nation of Islam? Yeah, I mean, who knows the exact number, but a a, a large multiple of women, young women in the nation of Islam, um, which sort of breaks for Malcolm the dream of Elijah Muhammad as this amazing person. So is your documentary positing that the FBI found that information and disseminated it or that the FBI created that? No, there's no evidence that the FBI created that. I mean, this it's pretty well documented that that this in fact happened, that Elijah Muhammad had secretaries and assistants who were young and who were his mistresses. He had an apartment in which he, you know, consorted with them and there were babies born, illegitimate babies born. And it wasn't just that this broke Malcolm's heart. It really went against everything Elijah Muhammad and the nation stood for because adultery was seen as the, you know, cardinal, cardinal sin. It was heresy. So, um, and Elijah Muhammad was always seen as a very pure, um, Godlike figure, divine. Um, I think is divine. what they mm-hmm. describe him. But as. the FBI, the FBI, was key in disseminating this story and making sure Malcolm and others heard it. They wanted to use it to create a rift between Malcolm and Elijah Muhammad, and between Elijah Muhammad and his most and his, devoted devoted followers, well, and even his wife. 
And even you know, his, wife, his wife, there Clara. were poison pen letters. That's they, right. That they, in the same way they did Coretta Scott King, they did Clara. Because you say that the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover's FBI, had more infiltrators in the Nation of Islam than in Dr. King's organization, more than in the Black Panthers as well? Correct. Yeah. They yes. had um, what are called top top level. Top level informants, which meant they were not only um, giving, you know, proven information, but in all likelihood being paid for it. Mm. Well, and also that they were in very high-ranking ra- high positions inside Within the, the nation. organization. And there were more high-ranking position, high-ranking informants inside the nation than in any other of the organizations at the FBI. Um, Black civil rights organizations, as it were. <sighs> yeah. Uh, so this rift is key to why... Malcolm and Elijah Muhammad break. Well, you know, and the FBI made sure yeah. that the right people oh, yeah. knew about yeah. it. So here's an example of COINTELPRO working inside the organization to break it apart. Well, interestingly enough, you know, that program come to be comes to be known as COINTELPRO, but at the time it was they were just working out their techniques and practices. It didn't officially get that reference uh, until years later after Malcolm died, right around the time King was assassinated. And by then they had sharpened their tools in their toolbox and knew exactly what they were doing and led to the destruction of, uh, you know, and death of many lives. Why was J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI so afraid of Elijah Muhammad? Well, they were very afraid of Elijah Muhammad because he had incredibly extensive, devout following. Um, he had power and, and, and influence. They saw him as a separatist um, and as a, a radical threat. and a threat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was this very interesting FBI document in which they talked about the fear of a black messiah. And um, they listed, this was actually after Malcolm's death, um, but they listed Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm and King, I and believe. Stokely and Stokely as the top contenders for that position. And actually in that same document, which is really chilling, they take credit for um, helping to exacerbate the rift between Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm because it was the alliance of the two. I mean, Elijah Muhammad had this kind of religious, incredibly powerful religious following, but Malcolm was this explosive orator, right? And he had the ability to like, you know, incredible charisma and they knew it. And so the idea that the two of them would be, you know, what, that wouldn't the, the the appeal was in severing that connection. Similarly, King and Malcolm, in any way allying, was seen by the FBI was as an incredible threat, and they did a lot to try to make sure that didn't happen too. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus 
a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash Toray for 30% off your first order, plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E, market.com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamin, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. So what, what is the FBI's fear of a black messiah, what specifically are they afraid of? They're basically afraid of losing their grip on the status quo, losing control of a country that is, you know, multi-ethnic, uh, multi-theoretical, uh, and and ultimately, you know, Hoover just was there to maintain what they had already secured for themselves. And by they, I mean the powers that be. I mean, they use communism as their their tool in all of this that gave them a kind of so-called legal leg to stand on, that it was the communist threat that they perceived was pervasive within these organizations that enabled them to get the warrants for you know, surveillance and so on. That was, you know, it's all coming out of the McCarthy era. Um, so they're they're afraid. They're first afraid of Elijah Muhammad, and then later they grow even more afraid of Malcolm. Malcolm wasn't on their radar right away. I mean, Malcolm rose very quickly in the nation. Well, um, they did start to surveil him while he was still in, pre- in prison. They did, the but they didn't. They didn't necessarily see what he was going to become right away. And then all of a sudden, he's on the scene, and he is incredible. You he's know, a catalyst. Yeah. Like, and that's when they start to really pay attention. Also, there was um, Malcolm spoke out about against police brutality very early and, and very powerfully. And when that happened, uh, the FBI, you can be sure, and and New York City's undercover agency, Bossy, really started to pay attention to him. I think it's also important to add that, you know, the rift between Malcolm and Elijah Muhammad wasn't strictly the kind of salacious rumors around him and his dalliances. They were fundamentally at odds politically, that the Nation of Islam had as one of its edict a kind of apolitical point of view. You were not to get involved in voter registration drives if you were to vote at all. Um, You were not to speak out against governmental authority um, like Malcolm did, particularly with regard to police brutality, for fear of losing your religious status. That was basically gets to the heart of the nation of Islam as an economic enterprise, mm-hmm. um, tax-free the f- as a religious organization. The, f- the fear of Malcolm, what, what does Malcolm's political growth in that last year, when he becomes much more of a global citizen, much more of a thoughtful, um, not that he wasn't thoughtful before, but just his approach to black liberation and justice becomes much more global, much more thoughtful, much more surgical. He starts talking about, you know, involving the United Nations. He changed from the black nationalist, the ballot or the bullet to something that in history we would see as much more powerful. 
and much more global. Does that ideological intellectual shift make the FBI go, we got to get rid of him now? Or were they already saying, we got to get rid of this guy? That's a, that's an excellent question. Um, you know, I, I would surmise that Malcolm had those leanings long before he was able to express them and that his divorce, if you will, from the nation of Islam gave him that opportunity to be his true self. I mean, the, the level to which his thinking had evolved, his pan-Africanist thinking had evolved, that was not new. Like, you don't just open up a book and come up with that. That That is days and years of scholarship and understanding the interconnection of the diaspora and 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 those of us who've been scattered across the globe and 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 how to harness that power and that was something that Malcolm understood probably long before he was able to express it i mean to the question of whether or not that made him a greater threat absolutely mm. absolutely because you describe you show he becomes this sort of international ambassador for black America. And he is received in other countries as a visiting dignitary. And he is just sort of showing up speaking for black America. That's right. And it's not just internationally. The other thing that starts to happen is because Malcolm's rhetoric, particularly towards white people, starts to soften somewhat. People, you know, in this country who had been supporters of Kings and had seen Malcolm as, you know, dangerous, violent, radical, begin to become more interested in him. And he begins to attract a more... Um, a broader coalition. Definitely a more mainstream, broader coalition, which was extremely threatening. And he and King begin to have dance around the possibility of a meeting, a phone call, you know. And, and this, again, to law enforcement, particularly to the FBI and Hoover, this is like the worst possible nightmare is these two guys... Unified. Joining forces. Yeah. And if you do look at the trajectory of King's political philosophy and what he was heading toward at the end of his life, this idea of getting away from legal protections and looking at poverty and war and, you know, international, um, you know, military power structures, I mean, that's very similar to Malcolm. In, 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 in an evolutionary In the standpoint. other direction, right? They're moving towards each other in those last months of Malcolm's life. So there's, a, I mean, we've been talking about the FBI side, you know, we cover the Nation of Islam side, but we've been talking about the FBI side, but I mean, this is yet another chapter in J. Edgar Hoover was evil, was using his power in horrific ways. Um, systematically surveilling, targeting, trying to kill, trying to discredit an American citizen who was not breaking any laws. Uh, I, I mean, it's, it's astounding. Absolutely. There's no question about it. It is astounding. And, you know, we all know it. And yet when you look at it, when you look at the, de like the details of what he actually authorized, it's completely stunning. It's a it's an interesting playbook, um, and one of the more surprising turns for us was you know in our effort to understand that culture and that period, um, we contacted the FBI in hopes that we could talk to them to help them, you know, put some explanation on all of this. And they themselves admittedly feel that that was wrong, that this 
would never be something that they could or would try to get away with today. Now, now when he when the FBI agent says that that we wouldn't do this today, I laughed out loud. Like, <laughs> oh come on. <laughs> I mean, do you think that the FBI wouldn't do that now? I think they've got their own problems. And part of their kind of, you know, restorative history here is just like a mea culpa moment. Just, OK, we've got enough to deal with with this guy at the head of it. And, you know, this Justice Department's got bigger fish to fry than to be worrying about COINTELPRO. I mean, I don't know that they're I mean, perhaps Black Lives Matter, but I'm not sure that there's a there's a citizen organization that would frighten them like the nation of islam the black panther party and these sort of groups dr king then uh, certainly not that we know of but we do know that the black lives matter movement was heavily infiltrated itself and out of which it was drawn this i think they call it a white paper of all things uh, where they um identified a, a group of radicals they called black identity extremists and that if you fell within that category, you were to be handled in a, in a certain extrajudicial way. Um, it's very frightening. Um, I'm paraphrasing here and, and probably getting into the weeds too much of things that I don't know much about. But, you know, we are really in the golden age of surveillance now. Absolutely. And that's because we're all telling on ourselves with yeah, our devices. It's a lot easier now. I mean, poison pen letters and you <laughs> yeah, know you all that need kind all of that stuff. Elaborate it, it's, architecture. Uh, exactly. It's a just, lot easier. You just need Google and Verizon. Just think about how the repression of Black Americans has been central to American history. How the First Amendment has been central to American history. How the impulse toward revolution has been central, be it for black Americans, women, gay Americans, etc. Um, and all of that gets wrapped up in this FBI versus Malcolm story that he's just trying to liberate his people and using the First Amendment, the core American value. And the FBI is like, absolutely not. And we're going to subvert you in any way we can imagine. Um to stop your movement. You got it. Essentially. That's, <laughs> that's the playbook. And, you know, I, I think we, we, we should also recognize that they had um, foot soldiers in the NYPD, that the FBI doesn't do this alone. They actually set up what are commonly referred to as red squads. Again, getting back to this anti-communist fervor where these internal groups within Local law enforcement, particularly in urban centers around America, are set up like outposts for the FBI. They're, they're trained by they're FBI trained agents. by FBI agents and set up to do surveillance and counterintelligence. <clears throat> and um, I think uh, our 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 sergeant describes them as handmaidens uh, to mm. J. Edgar Hoover. Mm. And in many ways, they're the most nefarious because these are these are officers and agents who are in the communities in which these... in plain clothes, carrying guns exactly. and badges. Exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, like you talk about the NYPD, which is not right. It's not as aggressive in trying to get Malcolm killed as the NOI and the FBI, but they are not giving him the protection that. It should be afforded a New York citizen. Particularly one who's under such threat. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the most 
I think to us, one of the most complex and fascinating pieces of the story because the NYPD intimately knew of the plots to assassinate Malcolm. I mean, they they knew the guy was about to be assassinated. And, I mean, his house was firebombed a week before he was assassinated. Uh, There were multiple threats. There was actually a call from um, one of, from... um, who, who was it who called? Was it Gene who called the... Um, yes, that he thought he saw a dry run. Yeah, Gene Roberts called the It was Gene Roberts, right. Yeah. He called the his his boss at Bossy, the Bureau of Special Services and Investigation, um, to NYPD's tell them Red Squad. this is in between the firebombing and the assassination, to say, I think I just saw a dress rehearsal for Malcolm's assassination. There was actually a very similar staged... Um, altercation in this Audubon ballroom a week before Malcolm's assassinated, in which something very similar to what ended up happening a week later happened, a diversion in the crowd to try to get people's attention so that they weren't focused on the front of the stage. And according to Gene Roberts, who says this on camera, nobody at the NYPD ever followed up. So bottom line is they knew it was coming. They ha- And we have this extraordinary moment with one of the uh, high-ranking detectives at Bossy who we were able to interview, Tony Boza, um, who's now in Minneapolis, who tells us, you know, yeah, we, um, we, needed, we knew that Malcolm needed protection. We knew he was under immediate threat of death. And so I came up with this brilliant plan. Let's offer him protection, document it, and he's going to refuse it. And it was a way of covering their ass. It was a way of, you know, saying they they did, but not having to actually do it. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. And what's interesting, of course, is why did Malcolm refuse it? Why did Malcolm say no? Um, and that really goes to his mistrust of the New York City Police Department. Um, police in general, but particularly the New York City Police Department, which was well-earned. Um, and so it's very hard to know exactly, you know. Booza characterizes that as a... Yeah. Cynical gesture. Yeah. I, I would call it more Machiavellian. Do you see do you see the NYPD in this as evil or incompetent? Ooh. It's a great question. I I I I you know, both those words are too strong. Uh I don't I would never indict the, the entire police force as being either evil or incompetent. But would I describe them as uh, irresponsible, um, complicit, um, yes, in that particular case, for Ap- sure. Apathetic, aggressively irresponsible, um, apathetic, bordering on hostile. It was too orchestrated to be incompetent and, um, Orchestrated so, incompetence. But just shy <laughs> of evil. I mean, yeah, it's look, just, they didn't kill him as far as we can tell. They didn't pull the trigger. Um, but there's but no they question. they allowed it to happen. They That's allowed right. it to happen. And there is no question <laughs> that had there been a, a squadron of police officers there on the scene, they would have caught the guys who did it. They may not have been able to prevent it, had men at but the they exits. would have caught the guys who did it. No question. Four guys wouldn't have been able to run out instead, of that place. three men went to prison for... 20 years, life, 20 years. And two of them, as far as we know, had nothing to do with it. Nothing to do we're with it. We're not even there. There, as far as we can tell. Because they, they said there. we were known to Malcolm's crew and we could not have gotten into the Audubon ballroom. That's correct. Everybody <sighs> knew those guys. 
They were well-known enemies of Malcolm's because they were part of the fruit. They trained the fruit. One in particular, you know, taught them everything they knew. You guys are going through some old, rancorous, difficult history and pointing fingers at people who have been moving in the shadows for a long time. Elijah Muhammad does not come out of this looking very good. You know, the Newark Mosque does not come out of this looking good at all. The NYPD, the FBI. How is this redounded on you? Are people saying you should keep your white mouth shut? We're going to kill you. We're going to do this. Da, 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 da. Like, is that well, happening? There's only one white mouth. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I'm the only white mouth in and this team. And I was born in North, team. so I got some point a few days. But <laughs> do we have concerns at times? I mean, I do think, you know, enough time has passed where we feel to some who were harboring this closely, it could be water under the bridge now. But the truth of the matter is, a man is now getting another look. Muhammad Aziz, then Norman Butler, who was, in our view, wrongfully convicted, spent 20 years in prison for a crime he did not commit, is now getting an opportunity uh, to be exonerated should the Manhattan DA move forward with its investigation and reopen the case. So that gives us great gratification um, to know that, you know, if we're going to kick this wasp's nest, something good can come out of it. You're helping to exonerate somebody. That was not our intention. No, of course. Initially going into this. It's just the accidental outcome of the work that we did. And the but, there, but there's people who are upset, surely, that you've... Not as many as, or at least not that we can tell. I mean, there has been an incredible um, sort of conversation on Twitter and social media about the series. And honestly, I was expecting more pushback uh, than we've gotten, at least so far. There certainly have been a few, but for the most part, they've been very quiet. Um, the nation has been very quiet. And um, we are not um, aware of uh, anything ominous being said about any anything we've said in the series. Um, we've actually been really gratified by how grateful most of the people on social media have been um, to have this story finally told. Yeah, and I think, too, you know, it should be stated that Abdur Rahman Muhammad, who dedicated the better part of his adult life to this pursuit and who we gave a vehicle to um, channel it, uh, is the most public face and um, I would say, you know, jeopardized individual if among us. And he's got the courage of a lion and uh, he doesn't seem worried. So why should we be? Has he had people pushing back and saying, hey, you know. Not that we're aware. No, no, I, we would be aware. Um, nothing, again, nothing. There have been a few people who are mostly challenging us on, you know, why didn't you tell this part of the story? Or, you know, this, you know, everybody's got a theory. Everybody's got a detail. There's a lot of conspiracy theorists out there. But nothing that has troubled him in a serious way. It's been an incredibly, you know, deeply gratifying experience for him because he has spent the better part of his life um, quietly on this journey and without really any support. Um, and it's finally out. 
And I think for him, that's just been incredibly vindicating. What do you want to come from this? Do you want the case reopened? And I mean, I think we definitely want the case reopened. Um, we, we want the district attorney to give this thing a serious hearing. Um, we want everything brought out into the open air. Um, whatever they conclude at that point, they're going to conclude, but all of this new evidence will be considered. I mean, frankly, it's not new evidence. It's been sitting out there for anybody to, to look at. But exactly. It's I mean, one of the more stunning things about the story. Yeah. Much of the evidence is not new, although there are some new documents that are revealed in the, in the series that we uncovered because we could submit a FOIA request after Bradley died and get certain information on him that was not available to Bill Kunstler at the time he tried in the mid-70s. So um, there is new evidence in addition to the old evidence, which is new. <laughs> the old evidence was, in our opinion, enough to yes. justify the case being reopened. Um, and that did not happen. Um, but now at least um, it looks like it's going to have a fighting chance. What did you uncover about Malcolm's life that... Um that you didn't know or that was profound to you in doing this journey? Because it's not just a discussion of his end. You also do a, a fair amount of work about explaining the importance of his life, this intellectual journey, um, you know, how he how he was during those final years. Um, so, you know, we get a fuller portrait of Malcolm, not just a sort of tight shot on the end. Um, so what you what would you learn about Malcolm that moved you? I mean, I was just thinking of something that actually Abdur Rahman uh, Muhammad said on a radio interview recently, which is that Malcolm had no game face. And I thought that was an incredibly um, appropriate way to talk about this this man who the more we learned about him, the more he, we watched him, because we got to watch hundreds of hours yeah. of Malcolm in archival footage, the more, you know, his authenticity um, and his vulnerability emerged and those two things, you know, you don't often see that when you're looking at leaders, you know, that there there's this kind of uh, patina anyway of kind of, you know, I know, I know exactly what I believe and who I am and what I want to say. And Malcolm was more of a, he was more of a real person, you know, and there were times where he, he actually changed. He openly didn't know the answer to some things that he was expected to know the answer to. And he admitted that. Um, yeah, I think Malcolm, the firebrand, you know, is often the Malcolm we get to see. Um, if you do a little yep. research and reading, you get to know a different Malcolm. I mean, Manning Marable's Pulitzer Prize winning biography is a great example of really getting a full textured three dimensional description of Malcolm. But to Rachel's point, sitting through hours and hours of uh, archival footage with his image and his voice and the ability to watch this tireless curiosity and an insatiable intellect um, come to, to life. It, 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 it's shocking, really. I mean, it, once it comes off the page and it's, it's there for you to see um, and his, all his, his vulnerability and um, charm. And that guy had a megawatt smile, you know, light up the darkest of rooms and, and it would come just, in a moment, you know, the, um, the Marable book is, um, so incredible and so powerful and it gives you 
the full portrait of who Malcolm was as opposed to the autobiography, which is extraordinary, but it is stylized to create an image. This gives you the full Malcolm, and he's still incredibly inspiring and powerful in the Marable telling. And the detail that most sticks with me from the Marable book is the NYPD officer who's assigned to listen to the wiretaps of Malcolm. And over time, he's like, you know what? This guy makes a lot of sense. <laughs> we and actually we, talked to that guy. Yeah. yeah, we probably shouldn't be like trying to hurt him. Like we should try, try to help him. And he goes to his bosses and they're like, shut up. Get back to your post. Yeah. And like, but the guy is actually really good. Um, and you talked to him. We did talk to him. I mean, he's quite he's quite. Um, aged now, and um, and he's actually in the series. I think very briefly, episode three. Yeah, um, we don't see him. You no, do we see do, him. You, you do see him. Briefly. Briefly. You do see him, um, but not not for very long. Um, he describes, you know, what it was like to basically listen to Malcolm's phone calls. Essentially, he knew Malcolm picked up on the second ring, for instance, yeah. and that was his clue to pick up too. I mean, can um, you imagine? It was like early 60s, you know, who Malcolm was thought of by white people, this fearsome figure, you're NYPD, and you're listening, and you are won over by his, I mean, like, every bias in him has got to be like, yeah. Malcolm is the devil. Right. And he's like, wow, this guy really makes a lot of <laughs> you sense. Know, Busa was persuaded as well. I, I think, think everybody you know, who was close to him, with who maybe got the exception of him. the FBI agent, who is probably who you're thinking of when you say you don't see him, Arthur Fulton, who uh -huh. was a Assigned to Malcolm, um, refused to allow cameras, but was very free and willing to share with us what his experience was. And and the miracle of miracles is that Malcolm actually recorded a visit to his house. That's an by amazing moment. It's crazy, right? Then the FBI yeah. comes in and Malcolm is recording, Malcolm's and they on. basically offer him money. They basically yeah, yeah. and to flip he's him. like, I would never work for the government. It's he's just, like, are you crazy? Do you know who you're talking to? Tape. It's an incredible tape. It's an incredible tape. They're like, we don't mean to insult you by asking. He said, you insult yourselves by not even knowing who you're talking <laughs> you to. You insult and your I intelligence. Would, yeah, exactly. Right. That's what he says. <laughs> tape recorder under the couch. You know. Yeah, no, the man was on. Uncompromisable. You know, I also think just as the as the white representative here on the team, um, <laughs> you know, I think white, many white Americans um, have a really one dimensional picture of Malcolm. I mean, even if they respect him, they see him as this, you know, this angry firebrand, you know, endorsing Hateful. violence. It's, you know, understandably, it's all based on the autobiography, if they're lucky enough to have read it. And he called you devils. I mean, you're entitled yeah, to but, your... Yeah, but I mean, you just get an inch deep and you see how much more complex this guy was, uh, how much more sophisticated his take was, um, and how much love he had. And to Ray, he you know? was 39. Both he and King didn't see 40. Now, I'm past 40 myself no yeah i'll admit <laughs> but i can't even like i was just getting started you know yeah. what i mean like i can't imagine I what know. that man would have accomplished particularly as a muslim leader
Thanks so much to Rachel and Phil for an awesome interview. And thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please leave a review on iTunes and talk about the show on social. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garofano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Friday and on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.